The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Reality is shaped by the forces that destroy it. D. Harlan Wilson, The Kyoto Man. Welcome to Episode 19 of the Murder Shelf Book Club, Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Alyssa Lamb by Jake Anderson. Shelf Bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. And for those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life true crime book club turned podcast. And while we do the heavy lifting, we encourage you to read along with us. Now, this year has been weird. (laughs) Yeah, our schedule is not normal. But hey, we are still pulling from our murder shelf, and we hope that you will tag along with us. As we like to do an in-depth review of each book, you can anticipate three separate episodes for the series. Whenever they should come out. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) Whenever. We hope you're staying safe and healthy, and thank you so much for tuning in. Yes, thank you. So, I actually have a bit of housekeeping as it relates to our second series, where we discuss the book The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. I believe that was episodes three, four, and five. I think so. I think so. They're all titled accordingly, so you can go back and repeat and listen to them in case if you haven't yet. A little background info. I write some supplemental articles for our podcast on medium.com. You haven't heard of that? Now, I want to tell you, I want you to listen to our podcast, but you do need to check out Tara's writings on medium.com. They are truly amazing. She is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I definitely would love if everyone went over and read. Again, it's just, even though we pick up on all those pieces that we go through in second test, there's sometimes little little bits of pieces that we miss, and I like to pick those up and put those out there. This article that I'm referencing was about female criminals in the 19th century, and I used Lizzie as the highlight of the article. And one of the readers left an awesome comment that I just wanted to share. Reader said, That defense of Lizzie must rank among the all-time supreme examples of double thing. A liar changes his or her story, but changing her story made her a hysterical woman. So since her status had been confirmed as a woman, and it was known that women couldn't do bloody deeds, then she was innocent. Just pretty much what we saw. And writing the scent made me dizzy. 
comment from the writer of this comment. <laughs> being at home made her a dutiful daughter so she could get a pass. This article reminded me that the Egyptians and Greeks blamed hysteria on the wanderings of the womb, believing it meandered through the body, blocking circulation, and causing other problems. Both Freud had nothing on the Greeks for overemphasizing sex. And women as poisoners, not stabbers, seems to linger on. There was a case of a man who returned home to find his wife and children stabbed to death. At first, the police tried to blame him, but only his shoes were bloody. His wife had defensive cuts on one hand, but their position on only one hand led the coroner to believe that these were cuts made when her hand slid down that handle, slipped with blood onto the blade. And the thing sure was, she was a schizophrenic who was known to get off the medication, so he was eventually cleared, and it seems like she was convicted. Well, you know, in today's murders, it's always who? The husband. Always. Always, right? <laughs> of course, but... More and more women are being accused of more horrific crimes. But back then at the turn of the century, no, no, no way. And this reader totally nailed it. Great, great insights. I love seeing that. Like, anytime someone read, like, leaves a comment, I love seeing it just to, to see what I might have missed or see what they think about when they read through it. Well, she definitely read through it and really got exactly what you were trying to say. But well done, Tara. Well done, reviewer. Guys, we also have another update on a case that we covered, a 46-year-old unsolved murder of spunky 5-year-old Siobhan McGinnis from Missoula, Montana. Murder bookies back in episode 6 on To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin, A Murder Awakens. We discussed Siobhan's murder and pondered if it was connected to serial killer Wayne Nance, the Missoula mauler, on a freezing February 5th, 1974. This adorable, beloved child went missing a few blocks away from her home on her way to a friend's house. And sadly, two days later, her body was found on an exit off an interstate, just tossed away in a snowy culvert. Oh, just devastating. She had been brutally stabbed, sustained head trauma, was sexually assaulted and murdered. Now, for 46 years, her family, her friends, the whole town of Missoula have wondered who snuffed out the life of Siobhan McGinnis so horribly. Enter 21st century DNA analysis. Thank goodness for DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Using DNA left behind the crime scene, a private technology company, Othram Incorporated, was able to create a genealogical profile of the suspect, which led them to the killer, as explained in the company's press release. The killer has been identified as Richard William Davis, who was 32 years of age when Siobhan was assaulted and murdered. Now, Davis is deceased, dying in 2012. It kills me. It just does. So he could face justice. Oh, absolutely. And Siobhan's father, Stephen McGinnis, thanked the Missoula police and specifically now retired Detective Dean Carestensen. Through his tears, Mr. McGinnis said, 46 years is a very long time to be in a state of unending grief and sorrow for one as beautiful as amazing as Siobhan. The current Missoula Police Chief, Jason White, revealed that it appears that Davis was just passing through the area when he encountered Siobhan walking down the street. Now, what makes you want to scream is that his vehicle from 1973 matched the one that witnesses said they saw. And 
Davis's physical description did as well. Well, I remember there was a lot, because they go through the book in detail about how they don't think that her murder is linked to um, Wayne Nance, but they talk a lot about how the car they couldn't match it to anyone in the area. So this actually makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, it fills in that wondering, where did this car come from, right? Well, we don't know if he committed other crimes, but they are providing his data to the FBI Violent Criminal Apprehension Program to hopefully help with other unsolved cases. Now, Davis's obituary said he had four daughters, a wife, and was a born-again Christian. So when all this came to light, Ona McGinnis, Siobhan's half-sister, told People Magazine that, The killer's family members are very, very kind people who sent us a very loving statement to our family from theirs, and they are also experiencing their own new family tragedy. I just feel so bad for these shocked members who really have no idea what their relative was capable of, and suddenly they're thrust into the limelight when they didn't do anything themselves. I mean, it's never like losing a child, but it's still a trauma. It's just terrible. Ona McGinnis went on to tell NBC Montana that this is a huge, big deal, a really big deal for us, and a huge deal for the Missoula community. This affected almost everybody that lived there at the time, and probably some still today. So I can only hope that this brings some kind of closure to the McGinnis family and the community of Missoula. 46 years, a cold case, solved? I definitely think so. I mean... I, like I said, I hate that this guy's dead, but at the same time, closing a cold case is certainly winning my book, especially because it's definitive. And you know, even though it's horrible, you know who did it, you know who's responsible. It's not a question anymore. Well, it's not a boogeyman in the, in the woods. He has a face. Yeah. It's like Michelle McNamara. Yep. And I'll be gone in the dark. Yep. Face. Now, here comes another plug. For uploading your DNA profile to GEDmatch Dennis's or Family Tree DNA. The holidays are upon us and people will be giving DNA kits for gifts, whether it's Ancestry or 23andMe. Really think deeply about uploading that DNA so that law enforcement can access it. And remember, you must decide to opt in if that is what you desire. Privacy laws require that you opt in. I understand that people worry about their privacy, and my personal opinion, for what it's worth, I would love to be able to get a killer off the streets and make the world a little bit safer, so I can't think of a better legacy than that. So, while it's totally up to you, I opted in. I uploaded my DNA to GEDmatch, and killers, you should be quaking at your boots. Okay. Yeah. My DNA is out there. Something about yourself, your family, you might not like it, you might like it, but... Uploading it to Deadman just certainly going to help. Be sure we catch these people. We actually did, and that's a whole other story because there's a lot more branches on my tree than I ever knew. But now we gotta actually get back in our story for today. Oh yes, please. So as you all might recall, we were speaking at the end of our last episode about how the Elisa Land case only got stranger. So grab your drink. I have a hot toddy today. I went through all my port already. Whatever Jill has, I think she has a glass of wine. It's usually her standard. Yep. And I do. And I'm going to make them. 
and touching, there was nothing. So, Anita's disappearance and death led to a, a plethora of conspiracy theories ranging from literally one extreme to the other. And Anderson knows that there are two basic themes here. One, a secret cabal used the Cecil Hotel for nefarious purposes. See it? Who's not? Who we know? Mind you, conspiracy theorists are a whole other level. Mm-hmm. And then number two, she was used personally to experiment ritual or sacrifice that took place there. She got involved, and the result was her untimely death. Don't think you would be surprised if the satanic cult or the Illuminati decided to perform their rituals out of the Cecil, especially the what we know about the Cecil today. But I mean, you, you couldn't pick a better place, right? You no. really couldn't pick a better place. No, 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 really. Also. Remember when we spoke about the tuberculosis test called Lamlisa? Well, according to some theorists, she was the viral host in a population control scheme. All right, that's a little bizarre, but the Lamlisa still blows my mind. Because that just, I can't rationalize that one. Makes her sound like patient zero. Maybe she caused COVID too. Let's add that to the conspiracy theory. <gasps> Only seven years later. Just kidding. I don't know I did it when I tried to travel out of the country. But you can blame me. Yes. Yes, Tara, it is you. <laughs> so we obviously know these are far-fetched, but stranger things have definitely happened. And in his search, Anderson stepped on a literal landmine. He called it the most absurd conspiracy theory in the history of the world. Literally in the history of ever. <laughs> That's this fantastic. Man, <laughs> this man he called Mark, not his real name, but we're going to call him Mark, told Jake that Eliza was part of a satanic ritual that when we see her in the surveillance tape, she's already dead. Yes. Jill, yeah, dead. Everybody, dead. She's mm-hmm. already dead. She's not even alive. And according to Mark, whoever was responsible for her death had rigged up her body with the help of a combination of belts and clamps in order to make it look like she was alive and moving around. So just imagine around the elevator, in and out of the elevator, touching all the buttons, like literally some bizarre puppet. And unfortunately, even though while we might be entertained by this theory, it's people like this guy, this Mark, who give Webster's a bad name. And this guy definitely left a bad taste in Anderson's mouth. Listen, I am happy to give you know, any theory a fair, objective shake, but this is just cray-cray. All right, this is just cray-cray. A zombie puppet elite. No. No, no. That's not web sleuthing. That is really deranged. And I just remember just kind of gasping in just horror as I was reading that. It's really quite a terrible one when you think about it, just in terms of not have a dead woman in a video for everyone to see, already surrounding all this craziness that we already have from every other theory that we could possibly derive from this case. Okay. Obviously, we have a lot of varying theories out there. And another one that was brought to Jake's attention was the theory of cemetery synchronicity. Got that word out on the first try. Let it be known. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of this. So, a married paranormal investigative team, Frank and Genevieve, their names, explained that the last bookstore, which was the last place that Elisa visited before she disappeared, had hired a registrant privacy company to help with his website. 
original box of said company was on Canada Way in Burnaby, a suburb of Vancouver, which was the same town that Elisa and her family had lived. Okay. I'm sure you feel that same kicker as we discussed the Lana Lisa test and plot for Dark Water in episode one. But the zip code for the P.O. box was located in the Forest Lawn Cemetery where Elisa was buried. All right, that is just abject weirdness, 100%. I just got chills rereading that again, even though I've read it multiple times. Yeah, chills everywhere. Wow. I mean, the idea of someone or some entity manipulating zip codes, that seems a little over the top. I mean, why zip codes? This is some weird form of numerology at work, but it is weird. It is strange. I mean, there's just no question that, like, what does that mean? Yeah, this is definitely strange. And I feel that when you have something like this, people will make anything fit. It's a lot of coincidence, and I absolutely feel that. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, at least I don't think so. There is a lot here, and I, for one, just, I, I can't explain how this happened without sounding like a nut. Like, I don't, I don't even want to go into it. Like, just the thought, like, it brings me to dark places. <laughs> but next, in which we're definitely going to delve into further as Anderson comes to certain realizations later on in the book, is that the LAPD could have altered facts and information from the investigation to, quote, solve the case and put public unrest at ease. And... Anderson has so many theories listed in here, and I'm sure there's probably others that he didn't even entertain for the book. We couldn't list them all, so definitely read this book. Oh, you have to read the book. In over three hours of discussion on the book, we're, we're leaving out stuff, guys. All right, so after putting pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard, you know, Jake Anderson has all of these theories laid out before him, and he's torn on what to believe. And at the same time, he's suffering from mental illness himself and struggling with maintaining that Elise's death was strictly the result of homicide. Now, admitting this would ignore her psychiatric condition. Now, man Joe Elwell, a friend of Elise's, having met at the Pacific National Exhibition, where they both worked, reached out to Anderson. And he describes her as an entirely different person than whom we've gotten to know through her blog posts. Quote, there was indeed something special about Elisa. She would walk in and light up a room with her smile. She made people feel at ease. She acknowledged everyone around her. She evinced a deep sympathy for people, even though she didn't know. The Elisa Lamb I knew loved life, loved participating and being involved. She was brave, a mover, and a shaker, end quote. We feel different mm-hmm, right? what we've seen from her blog posts that Anderson put in the book. Yeah. Right. Now, Anderson admits they have very separate, very different views of Elisa. And he notes that, like himself, depression can be hidden very well. However, Joe actually knew Elisa. He wasn't just reading blog posts. But Joe didn't know she had a blog and had never read any of her entries. So he doesn't know that side of her because he had never seen it, because perhaps she hadn't shown that side of her to him. 
but he also did actually know her. So while she shared herself so fully online, she didn't share her online self with her real-life friends. Really interesting boundaries that exist here. Now, because of Joe's relationship with Elisa, he decided he was going to devote his time to figuring out what happened to her. And Joe becomes a web sleuth. Just like everybody else. (laughs) Yeah, I could totally see how we could have two different versions of Elisa here. Especially because being online, you you can open up yourself a whole lot more being online than you would, say, the person right next to you. Oh, absolutely. Not that perception. You have an online persona that is separated by many degrees versus someone you're talking to in your living room face-to-face. I don't think we touched on it too much, but we know that she had trouble with her friends and maintaining those relationships. Mm-hmm. And with her depression and her anxiety, we know that possibly some of the thoughts of betrayal that she felt at some point in time might have been manifested in a way that her friends weren't able to see that. But she felt it like it's valid for her, even though they might not understand or know. And so coming from two different points, you might have two separate stories. Oh, absolutely. So Joe became a web sleuth, as we said, and there are a few central points that all web sleuths come back to, especially with this case. Could this have been manslaughter? That's tricky. There is nothing in the autopsy report that there had been an abundance of, you know, anything in her system. We don't know if she was drugged. There's no marks on her body. You know, I understand that not every case requires the kind of lab analysis that you, you know, delve greatly into, but the bizarre nature of this one, surely don't you think they might have gone a little deeper, found naked in a water tank? Wouldn't we think? And I know if, if we think of voluntary manslaughter, which we define as the crime of killing another person unlawfully in circumstances that do not amount to murder, rather an attempted date rape, perhaps. But we know date rape drugs do slow down the central nervous system. They cause dizziness, impaired judgment, loss of motor control, amongst other things, which could be the cause of the behavior we see exhibited on the tape. Correct. And in mentioning that tape, new surveillance footage pops up adding fuel to the flame. So there's this discussion of more footage, but we've never seen more footage. We did talk to Jake Anderson about that. Yes, we talked to we talked to Mr. Anderson, so you guys will have to look out for that episode. It'll be a special one. Mm-hmm. Christmas. Happy holidays. But Detective mm-hmm. Walter Sneal, he confirmed that there was additional footage out there, as, as many had suspected. And these videos showed Elisa coming into the Cecil with two men who gave her a box and watched her as she left the elevator. The two men were never seen on the camera again nor do we know who they are. What size was the box? What was in the box? Yeah, you know, it reminds me of that Brad Pitt question in the film Seven. What's in the box? And that answer did not go well for Brad Pitt, if you've seen that movie. I'm hoping it was just leftovers for Elisa. Maybe take out, I hope. I hope so. There was another web sleuth, a Norwegian one. His name was Wilhelm Werner Winkler, WWW. 
posted his first video on the Elisa Lamb case on June 13, 2015. The video features many camera shots from the original tape alongside written explanations, graphs, quotes from Elisa, several blogs, and other things. And when Anderson contacted Winther, he hit on another conspiracist. Go figure. One who believed that Eliza was killed because of anti-cancer drugs, I think it was. I, mm-hmm. This one is so bizarre, too. Uh-huh. It, it, I can't even, like, re-articulate this just with all of the in-depth explanation that Anderson goes into. Uh-huh. And when Anderson asked, though, if Winther had visited the Cecil, because, I mean, I know we know Anderson had gone back multiple times, People who've investigated have gone to the Cecil. Winther said, Yeah, and Lisa has visited me in Norway in 2012. Did she? Tara, were there anti cancer drugs in the box? I, I mean, just. It, I, they were smuggling anti cancer drugs in the box. I mean, this theory's just too bizarre. I'm, I'm sorry. It, to me, it's just a big what the hell. I I am willing to like listen to it all, but what? It's, it's, no, it's so funny because we talk about Athens Razor in this case, and I know a lot about Athens Razor, which is the simplest solution is most likely the correct one, which you would think would apply here, but we have so many conspiracies that it just keeps literally blowing out of proportion that we don't. We can't even know or articulate what the actual simplest solution could be here because there's so much fluff out there. I don't know what to grasp onto. Exactly. What's real. Well, here comes another web sleuth named Robin who is spending a lot of time trying to retrace Alyssa's last days, which, of course, makes sense. And he developed what he called a timestamp map. This one I can get behind on. Well, data, using data, this is, right? This is data. This is written out. This is not just me making something up. Right. So he delves into the metadata of Elisa's blog posts and was able to elicit like the following kind of information. So one, Elisa was on Tumblr literally every day for the previous two years. Two, she was most often on late at night. Three, she arrived at the Cecil on January 28th not January 26th, as some believed. And four, she did not use her laptop for Tumblr posts for roughly two and a half days before she disappeared. Now, this makes sense if she lost her phone at the previous stop and nothing else was posted from her phone after she lost it. Makes sense. Facts. I like those. Yes, facts and data. Yes. Yes. Then we know that the last person to speak with Elisa was the manager of the last bookstore. Her name is Katie Orphan. And she had told reporters that she had spoken with Elisa on the day of her disappearance, literally hours before when she would have been in the store to purchase souvenirs for her family back home. And she described Elisa as very outgoing, very lively, very friendly, just like her friend Joe had. That's significant because some believe Elisa was having some kind of psychotic episode. However, there are no indicators from Katie Orphan's observations. But guys, hold that thought. So it's not surprising that we have someone else that spoke with Elisa at the last bookstore. 
And Anderson and his team uncovered this person who came into contact with the visa as she spent time browsing that location. His name was Tosh Berman. And he said that while Elisa seemed friendly, it was off-putting for the area. Remember, we're super close to Skid Row. And Tosh explained that there was a certain area in downtown, apart from Skid Row, that he stayed away from, which was roughly a few minutes' walk from the bookstore. He called it the Gates of Hell. So, believe it or not, this is the Bermuda Triangle of L.A., and was well-known for odd occurrences in what we would like to think of, or as Berman called it, a pervasive dark energy was present. Hmm. All right, so for Tosh, he felt that Elisa was a person that would be easily taken advantage of due to the obvious nature of the psychosis that she appeared to be exhibiting. How weird perception can change from one person to another. Very different Yeah, right? So when he later saw the footage of her on the news, he did speak to a friend who was in law enforcement. And then he was urged to call the police. And nobody ever called him back. Now, I had to say, what would psychotic behavior actually look like? I think this is an important question, and here is the answer. All right, acute agitation, repetitive movements that can be overtly slowly conducted, impulsivity, an over-emotional tone, or exactly the opposite, a totally flat affect, like you aren't feeling anything at all, that, that kind of monotone presentation, suspiciousness, uneasiness, a, perhaps a drop in personal hygiene. Do we know if Elisa was bathing in that last day or two? I don't know, right? More psychotic behaviors would be talking to oneself, confused speech, like switching topics rapidly that can be like super unrelated. So you're just going from topic to topic and not tying them together. Delusions, which someone observing may not really pick up at all. Hallucinations, seeing things that aren't there, and an observer may see someone interacting with nothing visible, as you might think you're seeing in the elevator video. Mm -hmm. Those who are experiencing a psychotic break are not aware of any of this, and yet their perceptions of reality are very distinctly different from those around them who are observing their behavior. They think they're acting perfectly normal, but as you can see, they're not. Exactly. And and that's what Tosh said. She was obviously exhibiting psychotic behavior. In the same bookstore, at the same time, though, that Katie Orphan described her as friendly and outgoing. Literally, again, same scene, two very different Elisa Lambs. Strange. More mystery. Mm-hmm. And theorists who think she was perfectly fine believe and cite Katie Orphan and those thinking Lisa was psychotic rely on what Tosh Berman describes. So, the mystery continues. There you go. Well, I have to give Katie Orphan's version a little bit more weight, because she did check out Elisa's purchases, so they did have a direct transaction conversation together, even if it was brief. So, if you're having a psychological break, how fluid are you in managing your credit card? You know, I'm, I'm not discounting Tosh Berman at all, but, you know, purchases are something that we've done multiple times. It's something we do in repetition. 
So it's not something you do have to give a great deal of thought and consideration to. But psychosis is psychosis. It's not a light switch that you flip on and off at will. Oh, I'm going to be psychotic over here and I'll be normal when I get to the register. You know, it doesn't work that way. She doesn't even know she's being psychotic to turn the light switch. It's funny because I I almost wish there was more, even like, there's a lot here, but even getting like more chapter on uh, Katie Orphan and Tosh Berman, just to kind of delve a little bit more into their lives. Because if you, if you know the last bookstore, we know where it is thinking about all the people that she interacts with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And then, who is Tosh Berman? Why would he think that she was someone to be easily taken advantage of? Like, I normally don't look at people and think, oh, I could easily take advantage of that person. I could say, oh, someone's very open and honest in terms of what they're telling me, but I would never, I mean, I guess it's about perception. I would never think of it as someone I could easily take advantage of. His language choice there is very interesting, yes. Yeah, I agree with you, Tara. So, now there are those who believe that Elise's death was an inside job, meaning someone at the CISO. So, Elise having lost her phone and sharing a room with people she didn't know, she might have been a bit restless, not being able to get on the internet. I mean, I know I try to do, like, these phone purges, and sometimes it doesn't go well, but you got to do it every once in a while. But remember, her blog tells us a different story. Would she be as outgoing as some people describe her in the situation, or would she possibly come off as a bit Well, don't we all get a little cagey when we misplace our phones in our own house? That little panic sets in, and you're moving from room to room, and your eyes are darting around looking at every surface in the room. And your palms begin to sweat, and you're thinking, where are you? Where are you? Phones, where are you? You want to call out to somebody and tell them to call you so you can find your phone, but you can't find your phone, so they can't tell them to, and it's, you know, you're starting to get that panic. Oh, and there it is. It's underneath. The, oh, there it is, you little bugger. <laughs> Come on, we've all been there where we get that. Or the worst is when you know your battery's low. <laughs> And even if you can have somebody call, it won't ring or vibrate. <gasps> oh, I mean, you lose your mind. One percent is the longest person on your phone if anybody has an experience that. You said it, girlfriend. Oh my gosh, so true. Now, no one's ever talked to these roommates. And why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> so, damn it, we can only speculate. But I can imagine only so pacing the room and muttering to herself and not having an outlet to blog, to sort out these feelings and these emotions, no Tumblr. And, you know, these people witnessing this are now requesting a room change. Well, yeah, I would imagine that that's weird. They're not offering to help her find her phone. They're offering to change rooms. Interesting. Now, they don't know her. They don't know what you know, what's going on with her, and they might think she's a little crazy. You know, is that why she felt she needed to go up to the 14th floor, take a walk, get out of there, get a fresh point of view, something to do? You know, she would have been seen on security cameras. I mean, security guards would have been able to see her every move. And this is not the first time we brought this up. 
God, considering people, tenants, employees that the Cecil drew, would it surprise us that someone given a badge or a uniform that would exhibit some sort of sick power or control over the vulnerable, these solo travelers, would they have taken advantage of the situation? According to Tosh, she was the person to take advantage of. Bringing that right back around there, I mean, perpetrators do tend to have these this radar, in quotes, to locate the vulnerable and to focus in on those in need. She certainly was someone in need. She was certainly in a vulnerable position. So what we know is she left her room with her room key, and Anderson made sure to point that out, indicating that she had every intention of returning to her mm-hmm. and taking and having exhibited this bizarre behavior in the elevator, a security guard who might have been watching may have felt that this was an opportune moment to take that advantage. So here's the theory. Quote, the security guard escorted her to the roof, deactivated the alarm, and held the door open for her. These actions are critical because it means Elisa was able to access the roof without setting off the alarm, and she did not leave the DNA behind on the door. End quote. Think about it. The dogs never found anything. Nope. No one found anything. This whole theory actually makes a lot of sense. Elisa didn't know the layout of the hotel, let alone the roof, but a security guard certainly would. So remember, we do know of a security guard who is described as predatory. Was this the same guard that could have brought her up there, tried to make a move on her? Did it go wrong? Is that how she ended up in the tank? Seems plausible. And Jake asks us to think about this even more. Security guards at the hotel would have been the first ones to go looking for her when she didn't check out. It gives them plenty of time to clean up a mess if they need one. And one question remains. Remember Santiago Lopez, the maintenance man? If he is to be believed, why would whoever put her body in the tank leave this a string with why? Hmm. Because he didn't execute a perfect crime and nobody ever really does? And if the hatch was up on the top of the roof out of sight and the perpetrator or perpetrators, would they not glance up and catch the error? I don't think they would. But this theory absolutely checks off a lot of the logical boxes And that narrative, God help me, it makes sense. And if one leans to a theory or another that a crime was committed, this seems to be that theory. Exactly. And so now we're back at a point in time in the book where Anderson knew it was time to go back to the Cecil. Because what better thing to do than to put yourself in the place where the crime was committed and kind of walk the walk. And just terrified. And remember, we talked about just the effect the Cecil had on people, on him specifically. Mm-hmm. I mean, shit, it's a, it's a creepy hotel. <laughs> it's more, it has a more sinister past than one would like to have surrounding a place they go and visit and stay in. I mean, people getting choked out in the middle of the night by unseen forces, these intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to go there, but nope. he needed to be in the place where Lisa was last alive. And he talks about how it literally calls him. And we do know that as the search for the truth intensified, his mental health and anxiety actually began to spiral further. 
which was paralleling Eliza's possible struggle. And did his mental illness contribute to his feelings about the hotel? That he felt connected to it, maybe? It had a story to share with him? We don't know. Regardless, and we discussed this already too, he wouldn't be the first person to feel this way, nor the last. And while he's at the hotel, Anderson actually has an episode his first night. And we won't go into all the details, but he receives an email from his ex-girlfriend, Lauren, who is definitely a trigger for some of his drug and alcohol abuses that he talks about in the book, and one that he looks to avoid at all costs because he knows what will happen if he engages. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't even read the email, but he states, quote, something inside my mind broke. And while he had been making a lot of progress in terms of alcohol and drug abuse, he took a few painkillers that night and literally started down in a whole bottle of whiskey. And that's when he thought, maybe I should just check out for good. Was it the Cecil? Brandon on his weakened state now. Does, does something in that orbit magnify negative emotion and cause it to cascade in this manner? I really wonder about that. I don't know if the answer is yes or no, but I do have to wonder that he was triggered, absolutely, but there's enough factors and elements here where you have to wonder if that's not one of them. Not with everything else we've talked about. Oh, gosh. Well, now, remember that there are others who have spoken about intrusive thoughts? Well, this is a really good example of one of them. Mm-hmm. All right. Another guest that, that Anderson spoke with told them about their ex-boyfriend who nearly lost his mind at the Cecil. And he became convinced that a demon had infiltrated his body and did not vacate upon leaving the Cecil, but stayed with him for months after. Oh. Well, there you go. You go and you check into a hotel and you come home with a demon. I mean, just what you're going for, right? A paranormal compatriot, Chelsea Dismali, interviewed a former assistant manager for the hotel, Tosh Tashela McLean, on her haunted encounters face-to-face. In a chilling statement, McLean reveals that at least one person had died in every single room of the Cecil. There are 600 rooms, Tara, in the Cecil. And that's 600 potential bodies. Yeah, 600 souls being released. Wow. I can see it. (sighs) That's creepy, okay? However, the paranormal isn't the only thing to worry about. To pair with the history of the hotel, Anderson met with a woman named Sally who used to reside there. Now, Sally had seen some things having lived in another hotel on Skid Row before taking up her apartment on the 12th floor of the Cecil during the 90s, and she finally left by 2000. Now, she recalled the stench of death, dead bodies in the rooms around her from those who had died of drug overdoses, Maids moonlighting as prostitutes, making money in the very rooms they were supposed to be cleaning. She also alluded to blackmail, extortion, extreme drug use. Nice place to stay. Right? Sally told Anderson, quote, They need to burn that bitch to the ground and condemn the property. End quote. I, I like Sally, actually. 
In her discussions, she spoke of security guards, stating that they are just the worst. They utilize their master keys to break into rooms and steal property, and worse, rape the young women who live there. And if any of the women went to the police, they would get kicked out of the hotel and lose their deposit. The deposit would most likely be shared amongst the employees. Now, this didn't even apply to just rape victims. This was anybody that the management decided they didn't like. Drugs were planted in order to facilitate kicking people out without probable cause so that no argument could be made. And you know what? Well, actually, you already know. The police avoided the Cecil like the plague. Sally recollects drinking out on the roof during the 80s. Aha! What? You out on the roof? They are on the roof partying. So somehow you could get out on the roof without sounding the alarm. Uh Uh-huh. Unless the alarm wasn't there at the time. But I think it was. Okay. But when she heard about Elisa, Sally's first thought was, quote, they killed another girl. End quote. It takes a lot for someone to have that thought. Well, she's seen a lot that went on there. She knew. She's yeah. seen it. And, and, you know, from the stories that we've heard in this book about the Cecil, just in research, this certainly fits the profile of the predatory people that the Cecil magnet seemed to draw in. And when Anderson looked into it, he found roughly six registered sex offenders on Main Street mm-hmm. within blocks of the Cecil and three actually living in the hotel itself. Now, if you were a naive tourist come down and kind of uncertain, would you trust the security guards to, you know, give you good advice or help you out? I think a lot of people would look at any uniform as... Authoritative and helpful? Yeah. Safe? Helpful. Yeah, definitely. There are even live reviews of the Cecil that guests will call getting the creeps from some of the employees there. So... Documentation, we have it. And one woman, Tanya Danielle, reached out to Anderson via email, and she wrote, quote, While exploring the hotel, I encountered an employee in the elevator who offered to give me a tour of the hotel, and the predatory glint in his eye seemed unmistakable. I have met my share of creepy guys, but this man was different. He just seemed too polished and too sure of himself. I had the sense that he felt he could inflict his will upon anybody. The security guards are members of the staff who are running some type of racket there. It would be incredibly easy to take advantage of young women traveling alone, especially when they were the ones with the keys. However, this brought Anderson to the conclusion that there was certainly something less than paranormal happening here, and there was an established pattern of women who felt unsafe within the confines of the hotel and employees willing to offer unofficial tours. So, is that how she made it up on I think it's a really viable theory. I really, really do. Oh, boy. Okay. All right, guys. So, now we're going to take a lot of time in the third part of the book. And this is where the idea of a police cover-up or some type of cover-up takes place. We are most certainly going to go with the facts because we've been trying to stick to facts here. And let's take it back to the video, just like Anderson does. However, this time, he arrives at some dramatic conclusions. He sees something that he's had yet to observe, something you can only see 
if you look at a very specific and a very tiny piece of the frame, at 2 minutes and 28 seconds into the video, we see Elisa for the last time. If you hang on a bit longer to the 2 minute and 42 second mark, you see that a hand of the time code changes. Seven seconds later, the minute hand changes again. Count them. Two times in seven seconds. Now this most certainly lends itself to a theory that the videotape was altered. I certainly agree. Yeah. Now this is something else that Anderson noted. When the doors reopen at three minutes and 41 seconds, the hallway outside is bright red. Considerably brighter than it had been a few moments before. Now, Anderson offers some possible explanations from the least likely to the most likely. Again, we're looking at different theories here. First, the tape is edited. The remainder of the evening had been cut away from the tape and it's now daylight. The second thought is that someone opened the door, letting light into the hallway. This would seem a bit more than having hours of videotape missing. And finally, the elevator traveled to another floor. So regardless of what the most likely scenario, there is definitely something suspicious with the videotape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While we have that, just remember Athens Razor too. But because we have so many conflicting pieces of information on this tape, maybe the simplest solution is that somebody did mess around with it. Something went on there. That we know. Absolutely. Yeah. We have inconsistencies everywhere, so why not head over back to the autopsy? Why would the coroner scratch through undetermined and then call it accidental? What would cause the change? So many questions unanswered, obviously. We know a rape kit was never conducted when it very well should have been, especially considering that Elisa was found to have a perianal hematoma. And for those not medically inclined... This is where a collection of fluid within the anus, and in this case, blood, caused bruising. Now, some coroners would say that this could be due to the result of gases expelling from the body during decomp, or this bruising could have been the result of a sexual assault. Obviously, varying theories. And two separate coroners, however, indicated that rape may have occurred. However, LAPD still did not ask for a rape kit. What's the deal? Let's talk about the coroner first. Hmm. And I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but I certainly didn't. Jill, I don't know if you did, but many coroners are actually elected to their positions. So they're often former cops, police chiefs, or death investigators, or funeral home directors. So this is different from medical examiners who are appointed to their position. And Anderson cites a Washington Post article called It's Time to Abolish the Coroner, in which allegations of corruption were made against the California Sheriff Coroner System. So in most counties in California, minus San Diego, San Fran, and Ventura, the Sheriff's Department is in charge of performing the autopsy. Remember what we just said, coroners are former cops. So that being said, quote, California is therefore one of only three states in the country that allows an elected officer to overrule professional forensic pathologists as to the cause of death in a suspicious case. Isn't that funny? (laughs) Not to mention, the article also stated that once the cause of death had been listed as accidental or natural, there is 
no investigation. I'm sure you might be picking up on where we're going here. When the sheriff's office is running these investigations, can you imagine what happens when a deputy is under investigation for excessive use of force and homicide? A potential suppression evidence. Which a medical examiner, Dr. Bennett Amalo of San Joaquin County, said was routine. is not acceptable. Not acceptable. All right. Fun fact. The National Association of Medical Examiners, name for short, that issues an incredible conclusion to a study, they found considering what we just mentioned a moment ago. 43% of forensic pathologists who worked in a coroner system reported that the coroner had changed the cause on a death certificate in a way that conflicted with the autopsy findings. 43%. Now, really, people? I palm on my face right now. Really? Oh, come on. We need to look into this more, America. This is not okay. 21st century. Yes, we, no. we should not be doing that. No. Which is why when we come back to Eliza, we switch from undetermined to accidental. Mm-hmm. And other than the perianal hematoma, there is no mark found anywhere on the body. Is that still indicative that zero foul play was involved? The toxicology report was clean, yet no tests were utilized to determine if deep drugs or other substances had played a factor. And another test that could have possibly yielded results would have been a fingernail kit. Could there have been tissue under her fingernails? We don't know, because it was never done. I'm still thinking she's found floating naked in a cistern on top of a roof. That's still weird. You might go a little bit above beyond in this one. I know I'm crazy that way. Go for a damn swimming sister, and I can tell you that, regardless of what was going on. Oh, God. All right. So, Jake Anderson gets the opportunity to speak with the coroner, who had been part of Elisa Lim's autopsy. Coroner supervising investigator Fred Corral. And what Corral revealed was, well, yes, they had not tested for the date rate drugs. Most often, five major drugs are tested for, and if more are to be tested against, then the family has to pay for it. Date rate drugs are included in a short list. That doesn't quite seem right, does it? No. All right, so with rape kits as well, the family doesn't have to pay for it, but considering the local law enforcement does cover the cost of these, and they run between $500 to $1,500, it seems that the police will only process these kits for crimes that they think they can solve. Now, Corral also clarified that the Lamb family had reached out to him many times as they were not convinced that Elise's death was accidental. Now, this is significant because during the civil case, they had acquiesced to the fact that her death was due to mental illness, not murder. Corral went on to say that he asked one of the detectives on the case if he had formed an idea or an opinion or what had happened on the roof. And the detective said that he felt Elisa went up on the roof to go swimming in a water tank and that an employee or someone with roof access had let her go up there. Now, keep in mind the temperature on January 13th, the high that day was 75 degrees and the low was 54 degrees Fahrenheit. 
that's 23 and 12 degrees Celsius. So it's a bit low for a swim. Uh, guys, are there any red flags popping up and leading to a red mountain yet? Yeah. All right, so this is a confirmation that one of the detectives on the case believed that someone, possibly a Cecil employee, let Elisa up on the roof. But the swimming part, I'm sorry, that's absolutely insane to think that she wanted to go up there swimming on the roof. Unless someone told her there might be a pool up there? <laughs> okay. Possible. But then it comes back to the alarm, just like those damn blue dresses in our Lizzie Borden series. Oh, my God. So, good Lord, if the Cecil Hotel employees and management are to be believed... Anyone trying to obtain access to the roof by the 14th floor stairs would have set off that damn alarm without having proper credentials. So someone let her up there, or the alarm wasn't working. Oh my god, we know this. But if Elisa was up there on the roof for 19 days without anyone finding her, someone had to have kept that secret for the full 19 days. I hate to say it, but if she'd been found sooner it may have been easier to determine what had killed her. Oh, absolutely. Right. Withholding that information is just god-awful. Now I'm going to lay this one on pretty thick here. Because this is a little... Whew. Okay. Brace yourselves. Hold on. In the final minutes... Grab the desk. In the final minutes of Anderson's conversation with Corral, Jake asked him point blank, why a rape kit wasn't performed. Let's hear it from the guy. Let's hear it from the person we're talking to. Yep. He said, it was. It was. Carl advised that there should be a document associated with the autopsy report that indicated the test results. Where was it? Anderson actually did file a request with the LAPD, who told him that no such document existed. And when he spoke with the chief of coroner's investigations office, Brian Elias, he said that the department had gathered evidence for a rape kit, but that the LAPD did not process it. Oh my god. I was utterly speechless as I was reading this. They did do a rape kit, but they didn't process it. She has a bruised anus. You know, nothing weird going on here. What, to save 500 bucks? 1500 bucks? Seriously? Yeah. And we'll get more into this, but then there was another doctor that Anderson spoke with, Dr. John Hizrod, and he's the owner and director of Path Lab Services. He's a board-certified pathologist and physician. He knows his stuff. He's not a crackpot. He's not a coroner. He's a pathologist. Immediately after agreeing to the interview, Dr. Hizorov questioned the cause of death. The LAPD said that Elisa had drowned, yet we have no evidence of drowning. No fluid in her lungs, no water in her stomach, not even a dry drowning, which is when a person begins to take in water, but the larynx shuts so tightly that nothing else can get in or out, and thus you end up asphyxiating yourself. But also with drowning, there's also a hemorrhage of the middle ear. But no examination of that bone there had taken place, which is the mastoid bones. And neither had her sinuses, which would have taken on some water if she had, in fact, drowned. I 
I remain just utterly baffled. Dr. Hizarot wasn't finished yet. Oh, he's not done. He said that having found Elisa floating face up was an anomaly. Everything is an anomaly, but this is an anomaly too. Not normal. You get an anomaly. She gets an anomaly. Everybody gets an anomaly. When a person drowns, they usually tend to curl up into a natural fetal position and tend to float face down, not up. Another thing, she was naked in the tank. Had she been drowning, she would have started to panic and she wouldn't have had time to take off her clothes. And there would have been damage to her fingernails trying to find a way out of the tank. And there was no damage there. And even if you want to drown, your body's still going to fight against it. Yeah, your body doesn't want to drown. He ended that it was more plausible that she was placed into the tank that she may have died elsewhere in the hotel with a simple pillow to the face. No sign of drowning equals Alyssa was already dead when she went into the water. Now, Anderson was hoping to speak with the chief medical examiner, Yulang Wang, who signed off on Elisa's death autopsy. However, he was actually involved in a civil lawsuit at the time in which he was accused of falsifying an autopsy. Like, of course he was. Of course, of course he was. Dr. Wang is falsifying autopsies. This is part of the normal. I have a freaking headache now. (laughs) So, no indicators that she drowned. Not in her lungs, her stomach, her larynx, her middle ears. No nails clutching, but she drowned. No, I have to conclude that Elisa Lam did not drown because she'd at least have to have one. Just one. Just give me one factor. Just one saying that maybe she actually did die of what they said she died of. Just one. After all this, there's a slight shift in perspective, especially as it relates to the significance of mental illness potentially being a factor in her death. And since we have zero hard evidence of foul play, really don't have any hard evidence of anything, it definitely has to be considered a bit more thoroughly. But as we just revealed, there is reason to believe that the LAPD hid the Liza's bipolar disorder and used it as an excuse to close the investigation or perhaps conceal sloppy police work. There's a lot of sloppy. Sloppy Joes, eat it up. <sighs> Love the sloppy Joes, but not sloppy police work. Exactly. Yeah. And if this were true, we'll see in our next series as well. This would be an absolute miscarriage of justice. And this is one that Anderson is not going to stand by. Quit his job, drained his bank accounts, and he decided that he is all in on this until it plays out. Good for him. Good for him. I know, I know. I no way I could do this. He's just you know wants to pay, but good on him. Yeah. But here is where it's going to get even more touchy. If it didn't already. Remember when we talked about Christopher Dorner in the first episode? He was the disgraced LAPD officer who went on a killing spree after publishing a manifesto that cited examples of police corruption, racism, and other crimes amongst the law enforcement out there. Mm-hmm. Why do we bring it up again? Well, it's absolutely relevant. One, the Dorner manhunt was happening at the exact time as the search for Aliza Lamb was taking place. 
Therefore, resources are going to be spread thin, trying to end the violence that he's enacting on members of the LAPD. In addition to trying to find a young Canadian woman who went missing on American soil. And finally, some of the acts of corruption in the Dormant Manifesto have actually been confirmed by existing information relating to LAPD corruption. Now we're in it. Oh yeah, we are in it. Oh boy. Two words. Anderson begins seriously investigating the LAPD. And he discusses a few different scandals that have given credence to the idea that the LAPD is somehow involved. All right, first, back in the 70s, there was an incident involving the LAPD, the CIA, the FBI, the DOJ. I can just see all the conspiracy theorists drooling as I'm saying this. All these three-letter, whatever you want to see involved together in anything. Yeah, this can't be good. So a journalist, Gary Webb, published a bombshell report in which he exposes the CIA and LAPD for their helping hand in a Nicaraguan drug trafficking operation. All right, so I'm going to read this passage from the book. Quote, Webb's reporting suggested that an epidemic of crack cocaine in black communities was facilitated by the very agency using drug gangs as a pretext for violent policing against young black men, end quote. The war on drugs. Right. This is a shocking statement and one that remains relevant. Now, obviously, extremely controversial, especially for agencies of the U.S. government and one of the largest police departments in the country. Needless to say, the CIA the Washington Post, made it their literal job to discredit Webb and cast doubt on his report. Now, in 2004, this resulted in the suicide of Webb. Suicide in air quotes, guys. Remember the coroner who Anderson tried to speak with, but he was on trial for falsifying records? Well, not the same coroner, but the coroner who determined the cause of death to be two self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the head. Yes, it's really hard to shoot yourself twice in the head, unless I'm missing something. What? Yeah, two yeah. self-inflicted yeah. gunshot wounds to the head. Um, I'm sure it's all shit, even though I haven't tried to shoot myself in the head, and I'm not making fun of this lightly, but chances are, if you're going to shoot yourself... And even if you mess that up, you're not going to pick up the gun and probably shoot it again. Good lord. Now, here's another scandal for you, the Rampart scandal. So there's a place called Rampart, and it's described as a densely packed neighborhood that sees roughly 150 murders every year. And now the cops who patrol the area believe themselves to be a different kind of cop. This is literally every Netflix movie that has been put out there featuring Nicolas Cage in the last two years. <laughs> the unit was called LAPD Crash Unit. Crash standing for Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. And their slogan was, We intimidate those who intimidate others. Do you think they heard an empathy training ever? Oh no, they're too busy with the acronyms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too busy. <laughs> Far too busy. 1999, 
saw two writers from the Los Angeles Times, Matt Lee and Scott Glover. They published some articles which exposed this particular unit as literally something akin to organized crime. And a former police officer named Rafael Perez was the one who blew them all in. He was the whistleblower. He even blew himself in. Guilty conscience, literally. <laughs> His lawyers cooked up a proffer agreement, which sometimes is known as Queen for a Day, which is an immunity deal where you tell the government everything in which you maintain your freedom. And he was able to corroborate multiple, multiple instances of police corruption. <laughs> One that even fueled the Tupac and Biggie murder rumors. Yes, he was actually able to name officers who moonlighted as privately paid security to death row records who were also taking bribes from Suge Knight to keep their activities swept under the rug. Should you not, he was able to tie this back to this conspiracy. Wow. So, now, he's not done. No. Perez also discloses a horrendous crime that he was involved with. Now, he says that he and his partner had been involved in this shooting of an unarmed black man during a stakeout. Now, the young man survived, but he's paralyzed. Perez and his partner planned a twenty-two caliber rifle next to him. As we said, planting evidence is worse, but is, this is actually really bad. Perez confirms that this is a common practice. In common practice. Com- yes. Com- oh, yeah, just, yeah, sure, common practice. Yeah, weapons. Yeah. In fact, crash officers are known to carry extra weapons on hand just in case they need a frame job. Now, this reflects on the corruption Chris Dorner wrote about in his manifesto. Continuing on, Press listed other illicit activities Crash was involved in. Stealing drugs and money from evidence lockers, planting evidence, not just guns, torturing suspects, sometimes killing them, tampering with crime scenes. I mean, the list goes on. You're thinking of Nicolas Cage doing all this and all this. Oh, I have that movie running through my head as we're going through this. As a result of this investigation... At least 100 cases were overturned, and 70 cops were dismissed and charged. And this malfeasance went all the way up the food chain with the LAPD uh, supervisors overlooking much of the internal police activity in order to keep their crime-fighting statistics up. Because, you know, the data makes us look like we're doing such a great job. And guess what? One of the lead detectives of the Alyssa Lamb case, Walter Tennille, was a bona fide member of the crash unit back in the 80s before it got busted. Now, it makes us wonder about the Lamb investigation and some of the evidence, or the lack thereof. Yeah, the evidence are definitely not any great stuff, but something is afoot. Now, come on, you were wondering how all of that stuff was going to wind up back to Elisa. I know you were wondering. Oh, but oh. It, it all makes sense, right? Yes, and the next couple things. They were published post-Elisa, but they all come back to her case. So, January 2013, she's found dead. We find her body after a couple weeks. But in September 2014, so a little over a year and a half later, the LA Fashion District was exposed as the center of an international money laundering enterprise that was run by multiple drug cartels. 
And this was the same year where we also saw the LA Times publicize that the LAPD were misclassifying and underreporting violent crime. Stunned. I'm stunned. I know. The crime data stats, I'm telling you, they're crucial. This this makes it all look bad for everyone who's actually trying to publish real statistics. Mm -hmm. But following in 2016, so a couple years later, the number of aggravated assaults had been adjusted to be about 10% less than what they actually were. So here we are from Anderson, quote, in addition to the drug connections, a new picture begins to emerge regarding the context of the land investigation. You have a department that is undertaking a massive cover-up to conceal violent crimes while simultaneously exhausting its resources on the biggest manhunt, Christopher Dorner, in city history, which took a major toll on the morale and psychology of the department. And this was all taking place the exact week that Elise disappeared. What else was going on that week this poor woman disappeared? Let's just cram more into that week. Well, according to conspiracy theorists, there's a pandemic going on as well in which uh, her blood was being used as the vaccine. So who knows? Look, look at 2020 packed into one week. Yeah, you got it. So Anderson also reaches out to detectives on the land case, and one he actually kind of got a few words in, and he was detective to Marcia. And he advised that most of the officers involved with the case had a blanket no-talk policy. And so he's like, okay, well, we can't really talk about it. Here are some just inconsequential questions. Let me just ask you to see what I can get kind of thing. And after he sent the email, he got a bounce back, meaning his email was no longer sent. He was also blocked by Greg Stearns, who I know we've mentioned one or two times maybe, and other members of the LAPD. No more talky-talky. No. So, guys, the Elisa Lam case leaves a lot of unanswered questions. But Anderson's not finished. All right. He, his partner Jared, John Lorden, Frank and Guinevere, additional web sleuths of whom we've spoken of before, all convened in Los Angeles to review the case. (laughs) They couldn't stay at the Cecil, can you even imagine? Because at this point, it's close to the public. I'm sure they were really bummed. But a question they all kept coming back to was whether or not Elisa died in the water tank or elsewhere on the Cecil property. Lorton had a new theory and one that made some sense and one he couldn't really take credit for himself, but his partner. The theory being that a perpetrator or perpetrators may have ordered the delay of finding Elisa's body. Could it be that hotel management delayed the calling of police because they were directed by the executive board of the hotel to do so? Was the LAPD somehow involved in another cover-up as the muscle? Some of this all makes a lot of sense. So, inside job and a cover-up. Yeah. So, yes. I'm sure you remember, Jill. Other people might remember, too. But 2008, 2009... That was when the bubble burst and we had a nice little recession. Oh, yeah. That was when I graduated college, so fun times for me. Um, mm-hmm. Still suffering the consequences over here. Anyway, this is the time period that we find ourselves in in the story that helped begin to explain this particular theory. 
During the recession, the downtown LA area was being rebranded and gentrified to bring in the quote-unquote yuppies of that particular time period. So the idea was to turn hotels into more upscale buildings with both temporary rooms and permanent housing available. Ironically, that's the original plan of the Cecil. Guest rooms, housing. And this is how most of the homeless population ended up on Skid Row. The LAPD displaced them so that they could keep them out of these new rich neighborhoods that they were trying to create. Now, enter a man named Fred Cordova, who was a business developer, and he was brought in to help sell the Cecil. He ended up joining a group who wished to purchase the Cecil for themselves. So this was after he was trying to sell it. He ended up buying it himself with some others. And this was for about $26.5 million. Not chump change at all. Nope. And his plan was to be able to market this building to affluent tourists. In rebranding the Cecil to stay on Maine, Cordova tried to bypass a city ordinance to avoid rent violations. So technically, you couldn't turn low-income housing into high-rate permanent residencies. So keep it as a hotel, maybe with some penthouse apartments. You get right around that. Sure. And in writing a letter to the city, Cordova explained that the previous owners of the hotel had allowed for illegal activities to take place on the premises, allowing addicts to stay in the Cecil's rooms to get high, not to mention the occasional death, or maybe 600, every month or so. He stated, The Cecil is no longer a safe haven for criminals to prey on the less fortunate in our society. There you have it. The Cecil was a dangerous place. Ah, yeah, not quite, though. No. Not more than a year later, Cordova is out. Alright, Herb Chase, he's in. Money is scarce, you've got the recession on, and due to Cordova's action with city ordinances, lawsuits are beginning to pile up, and the plan to remodel Stay on the Main is cancelled. However, Chase isn't wholly concerned here because he plans to turn the property into a full-fledged homeless shelter. Don't get too excited. Don't let that fool you. The bind that he's in, he was just looking for cash on a massive federal and state subsidies would be coming in. And guess what? That plan fails, too. Next up, we're going to partner with one of the largest real estate firms in the world, the CBRE Group. Woo! (laughs) So now negotiations begin in early 2013. Hmm, what else is going on in early 2013? Oh, that's right. A young Asian-Canadian woman disappeared from the Cecil-slash-upcoming stay on Maine. One day after her body is found, one day, the deal is closed and announced. Chase was the newest member of the CBRE with a multi-million dollar investment deal hanging in the balance. Don Lorden states, quote, Is there some potential that Chase did not want the news of an international traveler being killed or even found dead on the property managed by a newly recruited member of the CBRE? To figure it out, we need to start looking at the information around the discovery of her body. Did they call the LAPD immediately? Or did they call their managing partners first? Did the management company have a different idea about how to handle it? You have someone 
Pedro Tovar, who's been with the company for 30 years, pretty much his whole life. He was the chief engineer. How hard would it have been for management to convince him that we can't have this getting out? End quote. Well, after the merger, Pedro Tovar becomes a corporate board member. Isn't that fortuitous? What a coup for him. Wow, he's a real corporate team player. What a what a guy. What a guy. What a guy. You're telling me. Thinking of long-term employees, we have another one that Anderson tries to track down. Santiago Lopez. I remember him. Was it close? We don't know. Anyway, Jay couldn't find him. So he calls a friend, Lou Plagiovanni, Plagiovanni, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, my Italian, but he sees if he might be able to help find him. So he said it was open, but the LAPD will say that it was closed, and they will firmly say that it was closed. So who's telling the truth? And after looking for Lopez, Lou couldn't find him, but he did stumble across a half-brother named Dominguez. Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. Someone gave Santiago a shit ton of money to get out of L.A., out of the country, and down to Mexico. And this all happened relatively quickly after the trial, after this whole thing went down, and no news had been heard from him since. Lopez is literally off the grid. So somebody just came along and handed him a shit ton of cash. A shit ton, yes the appropriate term for a lot of money. Okay, that just freaking stinks to high heaven. And that's not negative energy, ghosts, stars aligning in the urethral universe. Uh, that is pure self-interest at work. Yes, these are payoffs. Yeah. Let's circle back. Here we get to the body don't theory. So this theory suggests that Elisa died due to one cause or another, and then her body was moved and placed into the water tank at another point in time. Now, Lourdes suggested to the group that her body was found wherever it was found. Management was consulted, and employees were advised to hide the body. So this explains two things. The canine unit not sniffing anything out on the roof. They were raven brought up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the fact that there was no evidence to conclude that she had drowned in the water tank. Now, you can guess... There was a significant financial incentive to delay finding the body of this woman on the premises there. And that, my friends, my murder bookies, that is what we call motive. Yes, it is. Very hard to go with a crime when you don't have motive. Mm -hmm. So in October 2018, Anderson met with former LAPD consultant to get some of the deets especially since they had unofficially clammed up on the whole ordeal. And he calls her Mary Jane. So Mary Jane started working with the LAPD in 2011 when she helped detectives with analysis, questioning, and ensuring chain of custody in drug cases. And her work was crucial in securing convictions and some really high-profile stuff. However, something wasn't quite right. Even with enough evidence to convict and prosecute, the LAPD wouldn't move forward. Now, Mary Jane was about to learn something big, all right? An LAPD officer that she used to work rather closely with ultimately left the department 
because he had a guilty conscience. He told her that the LAPD often took a 20% cut of the drug deals from single sellers and even the cartels. It was a bribe, a chance to buy their way out of trouble, and there was even suspicion that a large money laundering outfit and prostitution rings were also involved. Sounds familiar to the Rampart scandal and all those other scandals that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And what was also evident was the rampant systemic racism within the department. Mary Jane said that if they have a black suspect, they assume he's guilty. Again, all these things being in line with Chris Dorner's manifesto that we have come back to again and again and again. And now, call it intuition, but when Mary Jane first heard of the Elisa Lamb case, something in her gut told her to trust your gut. Trust it that the LAPD was somehow involved. Similar to Sally, when she heard about Elisa, she was like, oh crap, they did it again, meaning the security guard. So something is obviously repetitive for people to have these thoughts. And when she started asking questions, Mary Jane, detectives became not so nice to her. And from Anderson, MJ knew a high-level private investigator, PI, who worked for an association. The LAPD contracted two lower-level PIs to work on this case specifically. And these PIs eventually told MJ's contact that the surveillance video was heavily edited and that they think an officer was involved. So an officer. Mm-hmm. Or not a security guard, an officer. Mm-hmm. That changed things a little bit. He also said that the hotel was involved in buying out the LAPD to drop the case. So loop that background into the body dump theory. A serious financial motivation to cover it up not to mention the perceived relationship between the LAPD and the Cecil Hotel slash Sam Main in ensuring that the hotel stays out of trouble. Now, the lower-level PIs can reveal more information, for in doing so could endanger their lives. It's a movie. It really is. It really is a damn movie. And Anderson acknowledges that having the information only resulted in more questions than needed answers. Huh, funny. We see it. Every chapter, I'm left with more questions. And Mary Jane couldn't do them anymore because she didn't know anymore as they couldn't tell her. I think she got out. Good for her. Just to bring another agency into this, Anderson meets with John Carmen, who is a former Secret Service agent who became a private investigator. After retelling Mary Jane's stories to him, John acknowledged that they had enough evidence to petition the LAPD to reopen the case. Now, John said, quote, he believed that LAPD officers would go to jail over this case, and it went far beyond gross negligence at this point. This is now a criminal conspiracy, end quote. And the next thing to do was to write a letter to the California State Attorney General. Oh, boy. Talk about anxiety-inducing. All right, so you can imagine what learning all of this may have done to Anderson, who is already struggling with bouts of depression. Could it be something more? Bring the conversation to his doctor. He says, listen, I think I have a bipolar disorder. And his doctor replies, "Uh, yeah, I suspected it, yes, yeah. And they never said anything. What a what a great guy. All right. His doctor explained that most scientists now view bipolar disorder as being on a huge spectrum with five different types, not two. 
Depression isn't just considered a chemical imbalance either, but it can be the effect of what is called a socio-emotional pollution, and it can be triggered by life events. You throw the two together, and a legitimate structural change to your brain can occur. For someone who spent years trying to reclaim his self without taking antidepressants or other medications, Anderson accepted the fact that this might actually help. And when picking up his prescription, he looked at the medication label with a familiarity. It was one of Elisa's. He swallowed the pill. He needed the relief. He was really following Elisa's path writing this book. Literally and figuratively. I think that's an incredibly brave thing he did. Oh, absolutely. It it just showcases just how much this actually had to do with the case. Yeah. So, in thinking of his own mental illness, now that he seems to have, like, a diagnosis that he received from his psychiatrist, bipolar disorder, he spoke with LAPD's chief psychologist regarding the Lamb case. He said that he had never, this is the psychologist, he said that he had never been contacted by the lead detectives on the case regarding bipolar disorder which is absolutely insane. They said that her death was an accident resulting from this. So how convenient that is. They knew nothing about her disorder, and in order to close the case quickly, they used it to further stigmatize a poor girl who died, most likely due to foul play. Well, she had a mental disorder, so she was crazy. We don't need any more details. She wanted to go for a swim, apparently. She just went up on the roof without her glasses, blind as a bat, and just lowered herself right in and swam around until she drowned. Yep. Wow. So, obviously, there's a lot of questions that are unanswered here. We have a lot of things to do with mental illness. We have a lot of foul play. But this is how we're going to end it, just as Anderson does, with the fact that her mental illness is stigmatized by the police and also stigmatized in our society. We admit that there is evidence to suggest this, but there's not much hard evidence to go on. It's what we call circumstantial. And there is a mountain of it. And this could potentially lead to the reopening of this case. But we're going to focus on the strongest evidence that he has on this roller coaster ride. Literally a roller coaster. Oh, yeah. This has been unbelievable. All right. So the police investigation was flawed negligent at best, corrupt at worst. They did not promise the rape kit that they did have. They were distracted by the Dorner manhunt. They searched the Cecil Hotel with a canine unit and didn't come up with anything, leading to a major loss in forensic evidence. They did not consult with their psychology department to obtain insights into Elise's mental state at the time of her death even though being bipolar was listed as a factor on her death certificate. Unacceptable. And second, the Cecil Hotel has a long history of systemic criminal activities, some of it even perpetrated by employees or management. So think of the unsolved murders and unexplained deaths. There are three former tenants who claim that employees sexually assaulted female guests and other residents. We have known predatory employees. 
There are corrupt and criminal business practices, such as withholding rental deposits under threat of arrest for drug possession. There's the general manager, the chief engineer, and a maintenance man who may have all perjured themselves regarding access to the roof and if the lid to the tank where Lisa's body was found was actually open or not. In a major financial partnership between Cecil and an entrepreneurial group around the time that her body was found. So did they conceivably hide her body? The autopsy contained a number of abnormalities and critical flaws in methodology and analysis that may disqualify its conclusions. The autopsy did not establish that Alyssa drowned, and it is more likely she was dead before she was put into the tank. There was anal bleeding. Did that suggest some type of trauma? No rape kit was taken? Or was there, regardless, we don't have that evidence. There was no test for date rape drugs. It took an unusual amount of time to determine the cause of death. Then the coroner changed the conclusion, and the chief medical examiner was sued in court years later for falsifying an autopsy and wrongfully stating the cause of death. Also, some of the case's most important mysteries and questions have not been explained or answered. So we have the videotape with the lost time, spliced frames, blurry time code. Where are the other surveillance tapes? We know there was more. They had security cameras everywhere. Where's the one that at least shows Elisa with two men or footage of the 14th floor? These have never been made public. The civil case was thrown out by a judge who had been previously accused of sexual harassment. Did that lend to anything? And seriously, was the frickin' lid open or closed? Oh my gosh, yeah. And then the new bombshell allegations... All right, Anderson mentions that an off-duty cop found Elise's belongings in a Skid Row dumpster. Which dumpster? Where? We, we don't know. Santiago Lopez, the maintenance guy, may have been paid a large sum of money to leave the country after he testified in court as told by a family member. Who paid that? A consultant of the LAPD told Anderson that the surveillance tape was most certainly doctored. Foul play was likely, and a financial arrangement between the Cecil and the LAPD was made. Widely held belief that an employee of the Cecil was on the roof with Elisa, or gave her access to the roof. Based on the evidence presented through Jake Anderson's journey down the rabbit hole into one of the most bizarre cases of our time, he believes that it was more likely than not that Elisa was not alone up on the roof the night that she died and that something unexpected happened involving other people. She was not alive before entering that water tank, leading to the fact that someone put her body there. And due to the fact that there was no clear signs of violence, no marks, no bruises, no bruising, no blood, Anderson believes that her death, dare we say a murder, was not premeditated. And while mental illness gave LAPD an easy out, we shouldn't give them an easy out either. However, it is feasible to say that given that there are various theories of foul play out there, mountains of circumstantial evidence point to all other which ways of anything happening, the LAPD may have been following many leads and were unable to gather enough evidence for one reasonable theory to hold enough water. Accidental death on the report. Now, how can we get justice for Elisa? It's not just about reopening the case. If her bipolar disorder led to a series of unfortunate circumstances that resulted in her death, then 
Maybe it's up to us, up to you. Find solidarity with those who suffer openly or even in silence from mental illness. There's a strong stigma that still exists within our culture surrounding all forms of mental illness that we can easily help to alleviate. While there are many causes out there to stand behind that might take up a lot of energy and time, this is an easy one. A kind word and acknowledgement of support, that's all sometimes people need to hear to help them get through bouts of depression, anxiety, you name it. There are people out there willing to listen. Now, Anderson ends with, quote, I'm not going to stop searching for the truth. Now that I know there's a cover-up, now that I know where to dig, I will retool and I will keep pushing for transparency, even if it takes me another decade. In the meantime, let's give Elisa her humanity back and recognize her for the great writer and fighter she was. Maybe she can bring out the fighter in us at a time when, collectively, we must change our ways. While we can't alter what happened to Elisa, we can make a good faith effort to prevent it from happening to someone else. It starts with transparency. And there it is, folks. Join us next time in Second Cast, where we're going to talk about a few topics of interest. A bit more about the Cecil, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and the Austrian ghoul, Jack Unterweger. And if you want to get started on our next book, I'd recommend it. It is a bit of a juicy. It's called A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris on the Jeffrey McDonald case. If you don't know anything about this case before getting into this book, you're going to find out that you now know everything. Jeffrey McDonald, a medical doctor, captain of the U.S. Army out of Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina, was arrested and eventually convicted of the murders of his pregnant wife, Colette, and their two little girls, Kimberly and Kristen, ages 5 and 2, back in February of 1970. Errol Morris makes it very clear that the McDonald conviction isn't quite as slam dunk as we had thought. He raises a lot of issues about the investigation that were not handled late and repeats some assumptions that are just plain not true. In one review, a wilderness of error is described as the culmination of an investigation spending over 20 years, a masterly reinvention of the true crime thriller. Thank you for listening. As Anderson wrote, we have a more than reasonable justification for the commission of an independent legal body to audit the LAPD's case files and launch a new investigation of Elisa's death. So what do you think? Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We'd love to hear from you. Or follow us and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. We love seeing your feedback. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Bye. Bye. Written and produced by Tara and Jill, all rights reserved.